So this morning, we're talking about a story that's a little different from most of the stories in the Bible. It's a story about how God was at work to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. Now, God being faithful and fulfilling his promises, that's not what's different. But this is a story about the patriarchs where none of them are the main character. There are two main characters today. One is a servant who is not ever named. And I think that he's not named because we're supposed to know that the story in the end is not about him. The other main character, the one I think this story is about, is one of our matriarchs. This is Rebecca's story. Rebecca's name means something like a knotted cord, something bound together which will never come apart. It's also a, a, a word that means a special kind of moment. You know that moment when you have an argument or a fight or a disaster of some kind, and you realize in the midst of it or right after that even though you've had this conflict, even though this has been a difficult time in your relationship, your relationship will continue. Your relationship will survive it. You're going to be able to reconcile and move forward. Rebecca's name means that too. The cord is knotted so, knotted so tightly that nothing can pull it apart. Nothing can break the relationship. Now as we dive into this story in Genesis 24, I want, I want you to hear the ordinariness of it. Yes, it's a big moment in Rebecca's life, and I'm not discounting that, but it's a moment that we can relate to. And so much of what God is doing here is through everyday life. So we're going to look at this story. It's very long, and instead of reading the whole thing, because when I practiced it, it took about 10 minutes to get through, and I just thought, that's a little much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some background, and then instead of reading the whole thing, we're going to read some of the verses, and then I'll kind of narrate the in-between parts. So what's going on in Genesis 24? Abraham is old, and he's worried that he won't live long enough to see Isaac get married. And he's worried because he knows that he is living among a people that do not worship Yahweh. And if Isaac were to turn to other gods, then the covenant between Abraham's family and Yahweh would be broken. Abraham is so worried about that, he doesn't even want Isaac to go back to Abraham's hometown because he's worried that Isaac will be tempted to stay. And Abraham is wise enough to realize that a wife who worships other gods would be a strong temptation for his son to fall into idolatry. And so... I think Abraham wanted a wife who came from his own father's household because it was his father's household that Yahweh originally called. A wife from the family God had called would be most helpful for Isaac to remain faithful to Yahweh. That kind of sets us up to dive into Genesis 24. Now you can follow along, but I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And the reason for that is if you're reading large portions of Scripture... This is a really good translation. It's kind of meant to be read out loud or in big chunks. So if you're following along and it's different, that's why. It is up on the screen if you'd like to follow there. Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. 
One day, Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. The servant asked, but what if I can't find a young woman who's willing to travel so far from home? Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? No, responded Abraham. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she's unwilling to come back with you, then you're free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. So the servant took an oath by putting his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore to follow Abraham's instructions. And then what happens is the servant takes ten camels filled with goods and riches for a bride price. Now, in this time, camels were rare, and so many filled with gifts shows how wealthy Abraham had become. And it's a message to anyone who would marry into his household that they would be marrying into a life that was wealthy and secure. So he takes the camels, and he heads to Abraham's hometown, where Abraham's brother had settled, and he waits outside of town near the well. And he prayed knowing how important hospitality was to Abraham. He prayed, God, please let the one you want to marry Isaac be the one who gives me a drink of water and shows incredible kindness by watering my camels as well. Now understand what he's praying for. Camels, when they're thirsty, can drink about 35 gallons of water. I did not know that before this week. That is a lot of water. He's not asking for them to be completely filled. That would be crazy. It would require a person to haul about 350 gallons of water up and down a series of steps leading to a well just to be kind to a stranger. He's not asking for that because, again, that would be crazy. Instead, he prays that God would lead her to be considerate enough to bring some water to each of his camels. Then comes Rebecca. She's Abraham's niece. The Bible clarifies that, like Sarah, her future mother-in-law, she was very beautiful. And like Sarah, she was younger than her future husband. She's probably a teenager. Now, it was the job of the women to bring water back for the family. And Abraham's servant asks her, Will you add a trip to the well? so that you can bring me some water first. He asks her to put herself out for a stranger. And this is how she responds, verses 18 to 20. Yes, my Lord, she answered, have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and gave him a drink. When she had given him a drink, she said, I'll I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw water for all his camels. Now hear this. She says, until they've had enough to drink. Remember that crazy amount that Abraham's servant does not ask for? That's what she promises to do. 
And Abraham's servant just sits there watching her, awestruck. Listen, this is excessive. She's using a jug that probably carries two to three gallons of water. She's going to run up and down the steps to this well to fetch this massive amount of water. This is excessive even by the hospitality standards of the day. This is the heart of a youthfully exuberant person with a strong gift for service. There aren't many things more Christ-like than this. And while that's not the word Abraham's servant would have used, he knows it's true. This is a rare person, and I think he starts right here to think, I found the one for Isaac. Now, one of the hardest things that we're called to do is learning how to truly serve someone else at a great cost to ourselves. Sometimes I'm asked, what should I look for in a Christian husband or wife? And this is one of the very best answers. If you marry someone whose reflex is to serve sacrificially and you treat them well, I think you're likely to live a very happy life. Now, the rest of the story shows the hospitality of Rebecca's family and also their love for her. Because even though they agree to the marriage, they want her to stay for a while. But she declines. She wants to go to be with her husband right away. And as weird as we feel about arranged marriages, Rebecca was definitely excited to be married to Isaac. And then verses 59 through 67. So they said goodbye to Rebekah and sent her away with Abraham's servant and his men. The woman who had been Rebekah's childhood nurse went with her. They gave her this blessing as she parted. Our sister, may you become the mother of many millions. May your descendants be strong and conquer the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her servant girls mounted the camels and followed the man. So Abraham's servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Meanwhile, Isaac, whose home was in the Negev, had returned from Beer Lahairoi. One evening, as he was walking and meditating in the fields, he looked up and saw the camels coming. When Rebekah looked up and saw Isaac, she asked, or she quickly dismounted her camel from her camel, Who is that man walking through the fields to meet us? she asked the servant. And he replied, It is my master. So Rebekah covered her face with her veil. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, and she became his wife. He loved her deeply, and she was a special comfort to him after the death of his mother. So what's so important about this story? Isaac is a patriarch that we don't speak of very often. And I think the reason for that is that the most dramatic story we have of him is when he was a boy, and it's mostly about his father. As a man, he gets married, he moves around, he makes a few mistakes, but he is overwhelmingly blessed by the Lord. Most of his story is telling us that God is blessing Isaac like God blessed Abraham. And just like in the story that we read, God is usually working behind the scenes to do so, giving him success in a life of farming or in the birth of his children. He is not a stellar example of righteousness. When we read Isaac's stories, he makes some of the same mistakes his father makes, but he does obey when the Lord calls to him. And that's about it. That's about what we have of Isaac. 
And so I love this story because it shows that even though Isaac's life is filled with this sort of ordinariness, God is working powerfully and doing extraordinary things. Isaac is the first link in the chain of the family of Abraham that would receive rich blessings from God. And it's in moments like these, as Isaac walks praying through the field and he meets his wife who brings him comfort, that we see that God isn't only concerned with the big moments. He's not just the God who calls us to tests like the one Abraham was called to when Isaac was a boy. Our God is present in the little moments as well. He's working when Rebecca offers hospitality to a stranger. He's there when her family sits down for a meal. He's making promises from long ago come true while Isaac is walking through a field missing his mom. Now, I have a confession to make. And it's one I'm a little embarrassed about, but I've grown since then. Uh, but it's one I imagine many of you will be able to relate to, at least on some level. My coming to Calvary in 2007 as an intern was definitely part of God's plan, but it certainly wasn't part of mine. Some of you have heard this story before. For Bible college, and to be able to graduate, we have to do an internship. And we're supposed to set up that internship like a year ahead of time. And we're supposed to make a first choice, a second choice, and a third choice. Well, I already knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Cincinnati and work with university students, with the man who led me to Christ. His name was John Wentz. And because I'm me, and if you know me well, this won't be a surprise, I did not set up a second or a third option because I already knew what I wanted to do. And so a few weeks before my internship needed to start, I get a call from John Wentz saying, hey, just so you know, you'll have to go with your second choice because I'm taking a position elsewhere. I said, oh, great. <laughs> Blessings. Oh, no. So I called my friend Josh Lehman, who'd been my roommate in school, and I, I asked him to pray about this because I had no idea what I was going to do. And he said, you know, I just interned at this church, and I'm now the associate pastor, and I wonder if you could come on here as well and I've got to be honest with you, I thought, oh, no. And here's why. I knew nothing about Mennonites. And at this time, this church was called Calvary Mennonite Church. But when I had looked them up on Encarta, that's how old I am. I looked them up on Encarta. Some of you don't even know what that is, and that's all right. When I looked them up on Encarta, it's an encyclopedia, the picture is of a horse and buggy. Now, Josh had been from a Mennonite church, and he didn't, he didn't have a horse and buggy, and so I kind of thought maybe this was like a mix. And so I came, and I interviewed, and I came to Calvary thinking that first Sunday morning there would be horses in the parking lot. That's how ignorant I was of the church I was coming into. Shame on me. But I did. I fell in love with the church here. I was so thankful for it. And then as my internship ended, I wrestled whether or not ministry was for me, and I left for a little while to be a, a manager of a family video in Petersburg, Illinois. I was not there for very long when I realized I've made a mistake. Ministry is where I need to be. But then I had the question, what kind of ministry is it? And in my youthful foolishness, I thought, you know, we worship a God of big things. 
What I need to do is I need to become a minister in a big church because that's where God's work really gets done. I had loved Calvary, and it wasn't that I thought badly of Calvary. I just thought what I need to do is be ready for big things. The, the Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac kind of things, the big moments. And I went, and I worked at a larger church, and I struggled there. I did not do particularly well. I became a children's minister because I loved working with kids, and I was mostly an administrator. And so then I had this wrestling match while I was there. What do I do now? I'm not, I'm not fitting right here. And I thought, do I look for another big church doing a different role, right, youth ministry or something like it? working with university students, which is what I'd wanted to do before, or is something else better? And as I prayed and as I thought about it, I realized the mistake I had been making in thinking that God was more present in big things than in small. Calvary is a small church, and I love it. And one of the things I learned here while I was on my internship that has been proven true again and again since then, it just took a while for it to click for me, is that God works powerfully, more often in many ways, in small things than in big ones. Of course, he's present in big churches too. I'm not slamming big churches. But what I had experienced here was the way that the Holy Spirit worked in and through the fellowship and family at a church like Calvary that just can't exist in the same way in a much larger church. It's hard to be a family of a thousand people. And so one of the things I realized during that time was that any ideas of, of God's preference for bigness, be it churches or moments or experiences or roles or callings or whatever, needed to die. Because we don't worship a God who spends all of his time in the big things. He's there. Of course he's there. But we worship a God who's in the small things too. And that's been confirmed for me a million times over. I have seen the Holy Spirit work in powerful ways in this church. In fact, this church did a, a service project in 2009, bigger than any that had ever been done by Southside, this thousand-person church, when we went to Wings as Eagles and built the Dream Center. You see, the thing is, when a, when a church is tight-knit like we are, is a family like we are, the fellowship causes the Holy Spirit to flow freely in just a wonderful and unique way. It's precious in part because it's small. Moments are the same. It's not just in the stories like the one with Isaac and Rebecca that God is at work like that in those ordinary small moments. Someone wiser than me has said that when you want to see what God is doing, you have to look for leaves blowing in the wind. You know the story of Elijah. After he has this incredible confrontation on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal, he's led to a retreat to rest. And God told him to go out and stand on the mountain because I'm about to pass by. And you know the story, right? What's the first thing that comes? Powerful wind that shakes the mountain. But God's not in the wind. Then comes an earthquake, shakes the mountain again. And God's not in the earthquake. And then comes a fire, 
that rages. I don't know exactly what that looked like. And Elijah apparently stayed put because he knew God wanted him there. I imagine that was a test of faith. But God wasn't in the fire. And then what comes next? A whisper. And it was in the whisper that the Lord spoke. I think that that story, along with Rebecca's story, remind us that our God works most often in the quiet whispers of life. The gentle breezes blowing a leaf to and fro. And we're called to look for him there, for the subtle signs of his presence and work, even if you can only see them in hindsight, which is so often the case. There's a verse that sums this up for me. It's Colossians 3.17, and it says this, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul doesn't say when the really big moments come, when disaster strikes, those are the times that God cares about what you do because that's when he's at work. He says in everything, in small deeds and great, in words heard by many or just whispered to yourself in the quiet, do it in the name of Jesus as his representative, his brother or sister, as a child loved by God. Because it's in those moments that God works most often. Following Jesus is mostly a matter of making small decisions that show he's your Lord and that God works in the midst of those moments. When you make the decision to have that person over for dinner, he's there. When you wear a mask, even though you don't want to, because you know the, the authority you've agreed to submit to has asked, He's there. When you answer a call to serve at church or when you make a choice to protect your time with your family, he's there. In the long obedience of going to work every day to provide, he's there. When you sit down for that homework assignment your senior year of high school when you would rather be doing literally anything else, he's there. When you're cooking dinner again, when you've already done it so many times you can hardly count, he's there. When you're putting the child to bed, even though you're stressed and you're frustrated and you just want to go to bed yourself, he's there. And in all of these moments, when we choose to follow him, he's there and he's working and we grow. And when we make a mistake and we don't recognize the little moment as an opportunity to follow him, then we repent, we learn, and we try again next time. And if you're living a life that you feel like is, is only full of small moments, like your life isn't making a difference, I want you to hear this. You're wrong. If he wanted you somewhere else, he'd call you there. But he's called you to where you are. And those small moments are what he uses to change and mold you to be more like his son. And they're the things that he uses to make your life a testimony of faithfulness and love. And it's in those small moments over and over again we find, in hindsight usually we see, that God has used us to love someone who needed it in that moment, in that way. And if we can learn to be faithful in those small moments, then when the big ones come, 
will be ready and will choose him. Because you see, it's not usually mountains that trip us up. Usually it's the molehills. And so that's where he works. That's where the tests are. That's where the Spirit of God is moving, often in ways that we can only see in hindsight. Because it's one thing to notice the leaf blowing on the wind. But that doesn't mean you know where it's headed. Like Rebecca had no idea when she offered hospitality to a stranger that should become one of the knotted cords holding together Abraham's covenant family that 3,500 years later we'd still be reading about the story of a girl with a Christ-like heart who was willing to serve sacrificially. So, Christian, what do we take from this today? What I want to encourage you to do is to leave here today and look for God in ordinary moments, in small things. Realize that he cares about the faithfulness with which you love your family, and he's using you in mighty ways, even when you cannot see it. Yes, we may have moments where we're called like Abraham was and put to the test in a big way that we will never forget. But most of the tests, most of the moments where God is at work calling, using us, changing us, growing us, are things that a day later we probably will not even remember. He's present in the ordinary moments. So sit down tonight at dinner and know that he's there, even then, working and calling you deeper into that blessed discipleship that is everyday life. And if what you feel like is missing is a sense of bigness, know that as you grow and as you mature, God will open your eyes more and more to see the preciousness of the ordinary moments of life. That's where he is, and that's where he's ready to meet with you. And so... Christian, go and meet with him. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you are at work in and around and through us at all times. Most of the time, we have no idea what you're doing. We don't know what kind word we might say to someone that they'll remember a day, a week, or a year later that you'll use then to help them. We don't know what act of kindness or goodness or service you will use to change a life or to change us or to lead us to where you want us to go. Lord, help us to not take any choice for granted to not miss any opportunity to follow you. To see all these moments as blessings, chances that you have given us to look to you and follow. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.